The Way Out Podcast, episode 281. What is your name? My name is Nicholas Warnke. Nicholas, what was your substance of choice or DOC? My DOC was opiates. What is your clean and or sober date? November 24, 2020. Wow. Over a year of continuous recovery. Yes. Congratulations, brother. Thank you. Thank you. How do you serve the recovery community? I serve the recovery community um, in, in a few different ways that are kind of specific to me. One of which is I manage a men's sober house and I it's the same sober house that I went to when I got clean last year, straight out of treatment. Um, I've been living living with Meraki Sober Living uh, Program for the last year. They've got sober houses kind of scattered about um, a handful um, in the in the northern suburbs area, and so yeah, I found a good niche with uh, with them, and so you know I work with the guys that are living here, kind of help them stay on track, get their meetings in, and just kind of speak life into them, and and they speak life into me as well. You know, it's a it's kind of a, a two way street. Um, we, we, we help each other out. And aside from that, I just, uh, I try to be active in the community. I I do a recovery page online called heroin survivor. And, uh, I have my own podcast series that I've started working on as well called, uh, the survivor sessions. And that's kind of a leap, uh, a, a branch off of my recovery page, uh, called heroin survivor. And um, yeah, I just I try to keep myself centered in, in that world and, and know that if I step too far out of it, I that's when I start getting in trouble. Staying plugged in, staying connected and continuing to share your experience, strength and hope really is a tremendous way to serve the recovery community. And it helps keep us well because we stay connected to others and we stay connected to recovery yeah yep i agree and if we are in the middle of it it sounds like you are brother you're in the middle of it yep not on the periphery not on the outer edges (laughs) but in the the middle of it yeah the eye of the storm (laughs) i think about it as that piece of playground equipment that i think they banned many many years ago Right, <laughs> right. You, you know what I'm talking the spinny about. Spinny one. Yeah, yeah. Those things yeah. were dangerous. They were dangerous <laughs> as all yep. get out. Yeah. Right? But if you were in the middle of it, yeah, you were good. That was yep. the safety spot. If you're out on the edges, good luck. Yeah, that thing was gonna fling you right off. Right? Yeah, that's an I interesting feel metaphor. S- yeah. Right? It is. It is. In the center, you're good. You might be dizzy, but yeah, right. it is so true though. Absolutely. And staying in the middle of our recovery program, staying in the middle of our recovery community keeps us well and helps us help other people. Yes, I agree 100%. What does recovery mean to you? Uh, Recovery, uh, I I would say it means the meaning has changed since I first got, you know, started attempting to get clean. But, you know, it's it's different than clean time. In my opinion, it's different than staying clean, um, staying sober. Recovery is 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 basically living. You know, uh, finding a way to live without the use of substances to 
you know, to, to give you the, the stimulation of, of joy that you need in life, you know, that you should have as a normal human being on earth. And, and I think a lot of that has to do with finding your purpose. Um, you know, if, if you're in recovery, chances are you've, you've got a purpose and you've got passion for some aspect of your life that gives you a reason um, that is stronger than the chemicals you know, um, in a spiritual sense and a mental sense, um, you know, maybe not in a physical sense. Cause you know, when you're in withdrawals and, and you're, you're coming off of drugs, it, it's a strong, strong effect. But when you're in recovery, you found something that works, that is giving you drive, um, to push you beyond your drug use and, and give you a meaning that's stronger than, than the hunger for high. And for me, you know, that hunger came from a sense of, I think, I think maybe isolation from my purpose, isolation from um, the world around me. I felt like I just wasn't connected with with life, and and so you know, being a very sensitive man, um, with emotionally, I've always been that way. Um, really, kind of uh, had a lot of empathy to the world around me, and I think opiates became a way to numb that out over time, and it just became you know a way that I would instinctively turn to in times of mental pain, emotional pain. Um, and so, you know, standing in recovery is for me, mainly having that passion and drive for life that pushes you to, to stay clean. So much of what you just related, I very much relate to myself. Recovery gives us the opportunity to discover and embrace our purpose right yeah i think so and that's where the magic is it is when we do the work of recovery and the substances are no longer in the way and then as we progress and do the real work of recovery more and more we get out of the way right then we can access our purpose and our gifts that are aligned with our purpose. Right. I agree. Yeah. You know, um, in my addiction, one of the things that I was addicted to was selfishness. Um, in my addiction, it was completely self-serving behavior nonstop. You know, if it wasn't serving my objective of, you know, maintaining my cover, um, getting drugs, getting money for drugs and maintaining that, you know, if, if I didn't, once I started losing sight of, of that, um, there's so much effort you put into maintaining that lifestyle that once you get out of the way and you, you learn how to stop being selfish, um, which is not an easy lesson. Um, my, my road to humility is still far from over. Um, but it's uh, it's a lot better than it was a year ago and five years before that because I've learned that in order to find something that gives you a drive and passion for life, it's got to be something bigger than yourself. It, it just has to be um, because when you view yourself as the most important part of the universe and the most important part of the world around you, I found that you're typically not a really enjoyable person to be around <laughs> um you may not think that you know and, and um in my instance i it was kind of like a 
an eye-opening experience for me. Um, this last time I went to treatment at Vinland and Loretto, Minnesota, and it was my second time being there in like six months. I went there the summer and then I went there last fall, right before Thanksgiving. And <clears throat> I got in there and immediately I went into like um, self-serving mode, like survival drug addict, a drug addict survival mode. Like I got in there and I, I, I met with the nurse and I was like, listen, I need more Suboxone because I was on Suboxone at the time. And I was like, I need more Suboxone. I need you to get me back on my Adderall. I need gabapentin, a million milligrams twice daily. Um, you know, just, just kind of trying to set up my treatment stay like it was a hotel stay. Like mm -hmm. I was just trying to manage my, you know, plan out my 30 day stay so I could be comfortable and still get that, that substance, um, you know, craving that chemical in my system, even though maybe it wasn't my drug of choice. Um, it was still feeding into the chemical that I, you know, it just fed those endorphins and I thought that I needed it. And I, I, so eventually I, I went back to my, my, uh, my room at, in treatment and I sat there and I was like, man, I'm doing the same stuff that I've always done. And I'm just trying to get my own way all the time, nonstop. And even in previous stints of sobriety and recovery, I was always trying to get my own way. Even if it didn't have anything to do with drugs, it was, if I wanted it, I wanted it. And I usually had a bunch of really good reasons why I needed it. And um, so the next day I went to the nurse's office and I said, listen, um, I wanna do something different this time because I'm sick of being in treatment. You know, it, here it is Thanksgiving week and my family doesn't want me around. My daughter won't talk to me. And here I am trying to con a nurse into giving me drugs, which is the whole reason why I'm here in the first place. Mm. And so um, I told her, I said, take me off the Suboxone, take me, you know, switch me off the Adderall. There's, there's other things I can be on other than that. And, um, you know, uh, I spent a good two weeks sicker than a dog. You know, Thanksgiving week, I, I didn't leave bed last year um, and uh, it, it was uh, it was painful. It was uh, it was messy, but it was also a really beautiful moment for me because I realized then kind of, OK, so this is what they mean when they say surrender. You know, I had always that was always like a fairy tale term to me when they said surrender, you know, and I was always like, OK, hold on a second. OK, I'm surrendered. Right. Boom. You know, like it's just some switch. And it's like, I realized then that like surrendering was not only, you know, a, it wasn't just a one-time occurrence. It was a daily thing, maybe a minute by minute thing. And so um, I, I I did surrender that, that outcome because I was like, didn't know where I was gonna go. Didn't know what life looked like two months forward you know, from that point on, let alone a year forward, um, no direction, every, every plan I ever had in life failed, every get, get rich, quick scheme, every really good hustle idea, it all failed. And so I was pretty much starting from scratch. And so I kind of found the humility to say, okay, let's listen this time. Let's, let's see what they tell me to do and actually do it instead of looking like I'm doing it. And so that was when I began to give an, I, I would say, an honest effort towards listening to um, what they had to say and, and the, the advice. Because after being through treatment after treatment oh, in the last 10 years, I figured I already knew everything. I just, you know, all I needed to do was decide to apply what I had learned. 
and it was a lot different um, when you start. There's a quote I like to use. It's, uh, you know, the longest journey in life is the distance from your head to your heart. Mm. Um, because I'm really good with head knowledge and reading stuff. And I can make it sound really good when I communicate it. And I can make things look really pretty if I want. But that doesn't mean that that's truly what's inside of, of my heart, like how I feel and, and who I am. And so I had to kind of find out how to be authentic. Mm. And mm. reminds me of two important sayings. Yeah, sayings I love good sayings. That I heard early in my recovery, which is, you know, I ain't much, but I'm all I can think about. <laughs> yeah. I'm a pretty big deal. Indeed. <laughs> and the one that we end this podcast with every episode, which is if you don't change, your sobriety date will. Yep. <clears throat> it's true. If I keep it, doing what I've always done, I'm going to keep getting what, I've what I always got. got. Yep. You have to do something different. And that's when the magic truly starts happening. Yes, indeed. Welcome Way Out faithful and first-timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen 
your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this rendition of The Way Out, we have an extremely relatable and inspiring discussion with musician, fellow podcaster, in person in long-term recovery, Nick Warnke. Nick's journey to and through recovery from addiction to this point was anything but linear, which only adds to the inspirational and relatable value embodied within his nothing short of miraculous story. Perhaps the most edifying elements personified by Nick's journey in order of appearance are that childhood trauma and adverse childhood experiences are not a prerequisite to experience a substance use disorder. The reality is that addiction can take hold with or without childhood trauma. Perhaps equally instructive is how Nick's substance use evolved from an easier to justify pill addiction to IV heroin use and the insidious justifications that accompanied this near-fatal escalation. The lines we draw while in the throes of addiction that we swear we will not cross and mean it with every fiber of our being can be rationalized and justified rather swiftly when in the midst of an excruciating withdrawal. A few fateful experiences precipitated by what can only be described as an extraordinary recovery that included true surrender, taking suggestions, doing the deep and often uncomfortable work of recovery, and surrendering the outcome to a power greater than himself resulted in Nick being of service in truly wonderful ways and continuing to use the skills and tools of recovery one day at a time. And he's just getting started. So listen up. Nicholas Warnke, thank you so much for joining us here on the Way Out Podcast, brother. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to share your story with us, your experience, strength, and hope with us. You run a group on social media called Heroin and Survivor. You also have a podcast, which is just incredibly close to my heart, mm-hmm. called the Survivor Sessions Podcast, which is tremendous. You're a person in long-term recovery, and you're here with us, and I couldn't be more grateful for it. My pleasure. Why don't you take a moment before we get started to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started. That sounds good. So my name is Nick. Uh, My friends call me Nick, Nicky, Nicholas, if I'm in trouble sometimes. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, yeah, I'm, I've been in recovery for just over 14 months, but it's been a long journey um, over a decade off and on. And I'm, I'm just really excited to be here. I, I, manage a men's sober house program with Meraki Sober Living. They've got men's sober houses um, in Blaine, Anoka, or Blaine, Ramsey, Coon Rapids, and Isani. They have a woman's house in Ramsey. And um, so, yeah, I, I kind of immerse myself in that 
um, in that atmosphere and environment. And I'm, I'm just uh, really excited to be here and, and um, take part in, in all this. Glad you're here, brother. Why don't we get started, get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in the family of origin. You grew up here in the Twin Cities? Yes, correct. So I grew up just north of uh, the metro, about a half hour in a town called Forest Lake. And um, it's kind of uh, growing up with it. Uh, I would say I was upper middle class. I was I was very blessed as a kid, even if I didn't know it all the time. I played hockey. I grew up on a lake. You know, my, my dad had a pontoon boat. So I was I was very blessed as a kid. Um, you know, when you hear about people in in drug addiction and in um, circles and stuff, you you hear a lot of really sad and traumatic experiences of people from their childhood. And, um, you know, I, I don't have that in my background per se. Um, you know, I would say what, what mainstream would call like your average American family is kind of what I grew up in your average middle-class white American family in the suburbs. Um, I went to school, had a lot of friends and, um, was always a genuinely really kind of outgoing, kid really outspoken i like to make people laugh i love to be the center of attention that obviously hasn't changed much <laughs> but um <laughs> uh so yeah i i grew up um and uh when i was growing up i i kind of tried out different things um my my parents wanted to kind of let my my brother who's four years older than me they kind of want to let us decide where we what we wanted to take interest in in life my dad, you know, taught us how to hunt and fish and stuff. So that became a passion. And um, he let us try various sports and hockey became a big one from a very young age. And, um, you know, I, I have a lot of really happy childhood memories growing up that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I take time now to try to be grateful for because, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't have the support of my family. Mm. And so, um yeah, it was a really cool childhood. I had like a, a BB gun and a, a woods that felt like the jungle. Maybe it was like right. a half acre right. across the street, but it felt like it was a jungle. So <laughs> <clears throat> me and my buddies would go back there and, you know, we would we would go on big hunting trips, uh, you know, and, and just uh, be kids, you know, be little boys. And, and uh, you know, it, it was it was a uh, it was kind of the last of an age, I think. Um, Sounds pretty idyllic. It was, it was, it was like, you know, before it was like the, probably one of the last generations before social media and internet completely took over. I could identify. I grew up in a very similar generation born in 1978, grew up yeah. in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Felt like a simpler time for sure. Yeah. It was, it was amazing uh, to look back um, because that childhood, that, that, existence is something so foreign to what my daughter knows my daughter's 12 and so she's um you know she's she's very uh adept in in the arts of tiktoking and yeah. instagram you know mm. just like any 12 year old kid or as the cool kids call it insta insta yeah she's mm. she's uh she's got her insta game going and so um you know i was trying to explain to her like you know as she was explaining, probably one miss maybe like the fifth or sixth iPhone I had bought her in the last since she was like eight. Um, not that bad, but um, she feels like that, right? Yeah, it feels like it. But she was explaining why she needed this iPhone, you know, and, and it was, you know, just the, all the, the features it had and her, you know, the things she could do and how easy she could call mom, 
if something came up and how easy she could get in touch with someone in case of an emergency. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently iPhones are better at, at getting a hold of parents in trouble when they're you know, in trouble. It sounds but- like Nick, that the <laughs> apple doesn't fall super far from the tree, right. you know, hearing you work the nurses in treatment and then hearing about yes. your daughter working you. Yeah, it's scary. It is is one of the most terrifying things on earth is seeing a miniature version of myself. Um, It's like her mom, you know, when when she gets in trouble, it's tough because she likes to avoid it just like her dad. And um, and and it's it's kind of sad because she probably learned a lot of that behavior from watching me over the years. But, um, you know, when she gets in big trouble, like, you know, if it's more than just like. Uh, go to your room kind of thing. If it's like, okay, we got to ground you type thing. Um, it's pretty much been handed to me the last few times because I see it and, and, and she can't get away with it with me because, you know, I know exactly what she's doing. And with her mom, she can't because her mom is, is not used to that type of manipulation. And I say manipulation lightly because it's, you know, all kids do it. Of you know, it's do. like, you know, just trying to, you know, I want, I want the bigger piece of the pie or, I, you know, I want what she, had. you know, it's just the way kids are. And, and so um, when she's in trouble, you know, and this is, this has only happened a couple of times, but I'll, I'll show up to the, to her house without warning. Her mom will call me and we'll have a convo. I'll show up to the house. I'll go down and usually she's sitting in her room on her phone and I'll say, give me your phone. And then I'll say, come on, we're going for a ride. And I think the first time she was a little confused and she's like, why, why, why? And I was like, don't ask questions, you know? And then the second time it happened, she knew what was up. She was like, oh crap. So something came out. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I I just have to sit her down and, and like, listen, I already know everything. The more you say you're putting your foot in your mouth and, and I just make it kind of seem like I know everything already. Like all the moms and parents have come out of the woodwork and given me the whole story. And that's literally what it feels like I have to do. And then she's fine. Then once she's like, oh, OK, now I can. And, and then we can start from the beginning of what happened. Right. You <laughs> know, your childhood. Is interesting to me because. Often those of us who end up battling addiction, alcoholism, substance use disorder, behavioral addiction. There's trauma. Yeah. And that's a lot. It's in a lot of our stories. It's in mine. It's in a lot of stories, but it's not a requirement. It's not a prerequisite in order to qualify Mm -hmm. as an addict or an alcoholic or somebody with a substance use disorder, right? Yeah, and it'll that, take anyone. It, 100%. It's an equal opportunity, right? Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned that I think is instructive as well in the intro was that you consider yourself a highly sensitive man. Yes. And I appreciate you saying that because I don't think that's always easy for a man to say. No, it, 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 it never was. And um, I used to hide that part. You know, I, I write poetry and stuff and I used to hide that part of me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I can uh, relate. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why my feelings often- were always felt like they were right on the surface. And it felt always like I took things harder, more personally right. than other people. And I didn't know why other people could things could just roll off their back yeah. and it was no big deal. Right. Yeah. 
And, you know, uh, you could dig at them and they would just shake it right off, you know? Yeah. And you dig at me and I'm going to lick that wound until it's infected. Yeah. And you're going to have to amputate. That's how I used to treat uh, how I I viewed a slight or a dig or, you know, just extreme, just extremely sensitive. Yeah. Adversity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's a thing a researcher has done a lot of work around called highly sensitive individuals. There's folks like I think you and I and other people that are more sensitive than the average person. And there's some benefits to that, too. It's not just a negative. Right? Right. So in recovery, I've been able to harness some of the benefits of being more sensitive than the average guy. Right. And also recognize that I can react differently today Mm. when I get that old familiar ow that hurt. Right. And I don't have to internalize it the way I used to. I don't have to lick my wounds the way I used to and make it worse. I have different tools in the toolbox where I can, mm. instead of just immediately react and say, they, that person's an asshole and they're trying to hurt me. Because most mm-hmm. of the time they're not. Right. Most of the time they're just not. Yeah. Right. Most of the time they don't even know. <laughs> exactly. Right. If we knew how little other people really thought about us, we wouldn't be so worried about it. Right. So (laughs) it's like, why doesn't everyone think about me as much as I think about me? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) One thing I learned very early on was I don't have to act the way I feel. Right. Right. Yeah. And I have the opportunity to do some inventory. Yeah. that's And take responsibility for my feelings. Right. Right. And then choose the next right action. Yeah. I think that ownership is key. Being able to to own it and and just know that owning it doesn't mean you have to, you don't have to act any certain type of way by owning your feelings, you know? And I think uh, I've taken a lot more practical approach to that. Um, And it's more of a cause and effect. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's related to some different therapies I've done over the years with cognitive behavior and stuff. But every time I'm feeling a certain way, there's a cause, you know, and whether it's, it's a chemical, whether it's a, a thought process or a, um, a mood that I'm in, um, there's always a reason why we feel the way we do. Indeed. And, and we could take I, some inventory around that. Like you said, own it, yeah. take responsibility for it. Right. And understand what's driving that feeling. Is it fear? Often for me, it is. Yeah, it's a fear driven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, and, and that fear, a lot of times fear of rejection is mm. is like really, really large. And I think it encompasses a lot of overlap into different areas of insecurity and self-esteem and being accepted. And so Indeed. growing up, you know, I didn't have a lot of traumatic things like um, abuse wise and stuff, but 
I did have experiences that did um, contribute to the way that I viewed myself mm. and the way that I viewed my role in life. Um, and, and I think that uh, uh, I, you know, I think that's important for me to bring that part up because it affected even till today. <clears throat> and it, it was when I started to um, having a lot of anger as a young kid, you know, preteen, 10, 11, 12, always getting in trouble. And I went through a stage in life where I acted out on everything. And um, so I, I joined a boxing gym and it was uh, it was not a, a well-known thing in, you know, back in the early 2000s, late 90s, like boxing wasn't really a thing, you know? And so we ended up finding a boxing gym in White Bear. My, my parents found one for me and it was I had watched the Rocky movies and I was like, I want to box. You know, I was so totally pumped up. You know, I'm, I'm like part Italian. And so like, I totally like was like gung ho Rocky for, for a while. And so I, st I, I found this gym and my dad would bring me and that became our thing, you know, f like five days a week, my dad would bring me to the boxing gym after school during the summer. And, um, it, it uh, it started to shape my confidence and, um, it, it was really good for me at, at that point in time, but it, it became unhealthy because, um, I think my dad had different expectations than I did. I, I started doing it because it was fun and I, you know, it, it sounds a little bit malicious, but I like punching people in the face <laughs> and I like getting punched in the face. And it wasn't that I like getting punched in the face. It was, uh, I like the fact that I could stand in front of one other person, just me and them. And they're punching me as hard as they can. And I can take it because that's kind of how I viewed life. Mm. Life is going to punch me and punch me, but I can take it. And so I started really getting focused on, on boxing. It was, it was like, I committed, I was like, okay, I can do this. And so I started getting really well, getting good at it. And uh, I won junior Olympics in 2000. And then I went on in 2002, I won junior Olympic state again. And so like I was starting to compete at a higher level and um, I, I was training a lot more and my dad, you know, was getting a lot more serious about it as well. And I, I would go to the gym during the day and, and I would spar this kid who was two years older than me. And he was really good. He was like top five in the nation type, type material as an amateur. And I was about, 14, 15, he was uh, 17, I think. And um, he would beat me up like every day. And I would go home with a headache. Um, and it got to the point where it wasn't fun anymore. And I wanted to quit. And uh, my dad was, no, you're going, you know, he would force me to go. Mm. And um, I would go and I would just, you know, it got to the point where I would literally get sick thinking about it. Mm. Because I, I knew after school, my dad was going to make me go to the gym. And I was going to have to get in the ring and I was probably going to get my ass kicked again. But um, it, it got it got to the point where it was really unhealthy because um, I was getting smashed in the face, mm -hmm. like like on the daily. And, and it went on for like this one summer. I was I think I was 14. And finally, one day it got really bad because I was, you know, I think maybe all the beatings I was starting to get better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But I, I ended up hitting the kid, catching him a good one. And I was like, yeah, finally. You know, and then uh, I realized that he was only at like half, like 50 percent. And so he turned it up to like 80 percent. And um, I mean, I, I was I blacked out. I, 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 you know, really, really bad concussion. And and um, I lost I started losing vision in one of my eyes and I ended up going to the hospital. They gave me a CAT scan and the doctor was like, dude, you got scar tissue 
all over your brain and you've got swelling and bruising. They call it contusions, which I think is just a fancy word for bruises, but it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that at that point, my mom put her foot down and, and like, you know, okay. Um, I was no longer at a force to go, but I had spent my junior high years building this reputation as this tough boxing kid, this sure. state champ, this ego came along with that. Mm-hmm. That was like a monster. Mm. And you tied your identity to that. Yeah, it was completely. And, and I also tied affection to that, which mm. I think was a lot deeper than I ever knew because I started to maybe subliminally relate affection and love and acceptance with performance. Mm-hmm. When I did good, I was good. Mm-hmm. When I did good, I was a good person. Mm-hmm. When I won, you know, this junior Olympic tournament. And when I did all these things, I got this attention. People praised me. My dad would brag to his friends. I started to tie my identity to that, to that success. Mm-hmm. And it, it stuck with me. And so when I, when I lost that and I went into high school, I think I, I lost my identity pretty much. Yeah. Um, you had approval tied to that from your father, which as young adolescent men, we know how important that is. Right. Acceptance from your peers, which we know how important that is. So all of that goes away. Yeah. Coming in and high school is just scary anyway (laughs) coming in as a freshman we're just terrified anyhow and now you have no identity to cling on to that must have been really difficult well it kind of was and and i had fit in already with the the kind of tougher crowd the skaters (laughs) the guy the stoner crowd you know whatever (laughs) click the guys that really didn't follow the rules well um kind of the badasses right yeah yeah pretty much and so like i you know i was still tough And I, you know, I still had this reputation and I love to, you know, I remember back then it was a big thing to go to these parties where they would bring boxing gloves and all these teenagers are getting drunk and they're fighting each other, you know, and and I look back at it now and it's like, well, we could have been doing a lot worse things. It wasn't like a full blown fight club, but it was at least we had gloves on. It uh, It was fight club light. Yeah. 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 The light version. So I I was in like 10th grade going to these parties where not a lot of people knew me yet, you know, older kids. And and um, I would go to these parties and I would put these gloves on and I would I would party and I would fight and I would, you know, and um, it, it, I started building this reputation and everybody knew who I was. And I loved the attention and it it started to feed into me. And I, I would just it, it just kept feeding and feeding. And then um, I, it, it ended up in, in real, a really good life lesson. A, f- uh, a friend of mine to this day, his name is Case. He was older than me and we went to this party and I was drinking, drank way too much. And um, I, my mouth got away with me and he, he, he beat me up. <laughs> and it was probably the, the, I think I thanked him for it probably a thousand times since then, but it was a humbling experience for me because I was like, okay, I'm not invincible. And um, it was a little humiliating, but no, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Nobody was like, oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just kind of like tried to find where I fit in and it ended up being with that group of of tough stoner type people. And and so I started to try to find different ways to be accepted and be be, you know, have that same level of like, I guess I would 
call it respect maybe like your mm. teenage version of respect where you know people like wouldn't mess with you as like a man you know like a masculine oh don't mess with him type thing and um so i started um getting into the crowds of people that uh sold weed because at this point i started that this is when i started smoking weed because that was like the next thing after that do you remember the first time you drank do you remember the first time you got high and were those memorable experiences? They were um, the drinking one mainly because um, I started drinking probably obviously way too early. Um, I was like 14 and um, it was the summer before I went into eighth grade and me and my friend um, had been drinking we had started doing it together. We found some, some vodka and like a, my parents don't really drink. So they always had this cabinet of alcohol for when friends came over and um, it, it had been there for years. <laughs> and so um, I don't know whose idea it was probably mine, maybe, you know, thinking of, but we were like, Oh, let's try We should try getting drunk. And um, so we took a bunch of Kool-Aid packets and some sugar and a blender and some ice and made some, some vodka Kool-Aid martinis. And um, it was we thought it was like the coolest thing in the world. And then, that was that's pretty advanced mixology for being yeah, 14, Nick. Like, I know we wanted. Yeah, I don't know where I don't know how it got so <laughs> there was no there was no like Google then either. So like, that's, <laughs> no, you know, there wasn't. Right. It was like I knew how to make a chocolate malt. <laughs> so <laughs> I took that knowledge. You just applied was, that very good. Yeah. So. um, So, yeah, we were doing that for a couple of weekends in a row and then. One night, um, I had found a bottle of, of Windsor, Canadian Irish whiskey. It was uh, it was like a one seven five or not a, a liter. And mm-hmm. so we were like, dude, we should get more wasted than we've ever been. Like, let's get like really drunk. And so we were like, all right. And uh, we drank that whole bottle between two 14 year old kids, um, maybe 120 pounds, um, you know, and uh we drank the whole bottle and then my brother came home and funny enough, we were watching Rocky and uh, we're sitting there watching Rocky. And all of a sudden my friend Alex is, is uh, he starts like slurring and, and like all of a sudden he starts vomiting everywhere and my brother's freaking out and I'm trying to like act like it's cool. Like, Oh no, we're good. He's just not feeling good. And uh, my parents come out, they're freaking out trying to figure out what's going on. And he's like starting to choke on his vomit. And I'm like trying to play it off. Like, Oh, he's having an asthma attack. <laughs> and uh no you what you know and so finally they're they called 911 and that's when i like spilled the beans i was like yeah listen you know and at this point i'm crying i'm 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 hysterical oh we drank the wind you know we and my dad and i remember him going and grabbing the bottle and seeing it was empty and he his like his face just turned white he was like holy shit like you got you just drank a whole bottle like you know um and so like i i think back now i'm like oh my god my parents must have like been having a heart attack cuz they had to call my friend's parents and let him know that he was on the way to the hospital because we had gotten drunk. And so, um, yeah, he, he got his stomach pumped. I didn't, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure he drank a lot more than I did, obviously. Um, and so uh, I remember most of that night and um, it, it really affected, I think, my experience with drugs and alcohol later on in life because we came out of it and and I didn't drink again for a long time um, in high school after that, because I was just 
I, you know, after going through something like that, I, I, I just like traumatized. And so that's when I started smoking weed when I went into high school. And the first time I smoked weed, um, I don't really think I even liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I probably had like a panic attack or something, if I remember right. But the more I did it, the more it just became something I did. And then it became something me and my friends did. Yeah. You know, Nick, that experience with your friend and drinking an entire bottle of Windsor between the two of you. My parents also had the same exact liquor cabinet that yours did that they never went into unless there was company. Yep. We also rated that thing (laughs) at about age 14 and 15 and on. Yep. We got away with it for a lot longer until my dad discovered that most of it was water because we would (laughs) refill the try to, you know, uh, the gig gig was up at some point. But but your experience reminds me of the very first time I got drunk. I was at a friend's house. He lived on a lake. Mm. His parents were out of town and they had a fully stocked bar. And. I got so completely hammered because it felt so amazing. It felt so good. Yeah, it just felt so good, Nick. It was impossible to really put into words how amazing it made me feel, but it instantly eliminated all of my anxiety, all of my fear, all of my inadequacies. And allowed me to be the person I always wanted to be. Mm. I was confident. I was funny. Yeah. And I just couldn't get enough. And they tried to cut me off at some point and I wasn't having it. And I became a complete menace at that party (laughs) because I kept wanting more. And I was already far too drunk. And so they stuck me at a dog kennel outside and locked it. Oh, wow. And some hours later, they checked on me and I had passed out and stopped breathing. Oh, man. And my lips were blue. And my best friend somehow was able to revive me by pumping my chest. And then they decided instead of calling the cops or 911 or bringing me to the hospital because they didn't want to get in trouble, they fed me an entire bottle of syrup of Ipecac. Oh, shit. And I proceeded to vomit for like eight hours straight. Oh, yeah. It was the worst afterwards. But, 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 but. (laughs) I blacked out for a lot of that. And all I really remember is feeling the best I've ever felt in my entire life. And all I wanted to do was do that again. Plus... I literally died and came back to life again. So I was like a party legend. Yeah. Yeah. You were resurrected. hundred percent. hundred percent. People were either of two minds. Some people were like, you're going to drink again. You're insane. Yep. And those were the people that were relatively well adjusted and normal. (laughs) Right. And then there was my friends. Who were like, dude, you're a legend. Yeah, you're an animal. You're Frank, Frank the Tank. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And and with weed, too, it was ubiquitous. Weed was yeah. everywhere, right? And it was yep. super easy to get. 
Weed was easier to get than cigarettes. It was easier to get than alcohol. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it was really compatible with the high school lifestyle, especially when you're hanging out with everybody else that yeah. does it too, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, uh, you know, that kind of took over, you know, high school. I became this, uh, you know, suburban white kid high school version of like, you know, some weed dealer, you know, selling, selling quarter ounces and, and, and just thinking I'm like the shit, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I was 16 and I remember I, my first car was a Lincoln town car, 89 yeah. Lincoln town car, just a boat. We called it the Titanic. Yeah. It was just like a white, you know, rag, blue rag top leather and leather. Man, I was so cool in that thing. And so we roll around in my hoopty, you know, and we Heck were, yeah, you know, man, my first car like, was a Chevy Caprice, man. Like, I get it. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, I I, uh, I was always well liked in high school, even, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I I like to get along with everyone. You know, I never I was always anti bullying, you mm-hmm. know. Like in high school, I didn't like that. I didn't like seeing stuff like that. So I, I was friends with the jocks, the stoners, the the nerds. I took FFA classes. I was in FFA, Future Farmers of America, mm. um, mainly because I, you know, I took all I found out in high school. I could get my science credits through the ag department. So I took like greenhouse science and plant science. You know, I'm trying to learn how to grow. <laughs> and I took all these plant landscaping classes and, and um, I became really close with like that department of teachers. And there was a, a teacher there that saw something in me and he was probably one of my favorite teachers in high school, but he, he was the one that kind of encouraged me to write more because I would, mm. I would do these projects and, and I would write out stuff, you know, essays and, 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 he, and he would, you know, have me stay after class and he would kind of, you know, uh, cause he, he, my group of friends did not hang out in that department. They, they weren't, part of the the ffa (laughs) they weren't part of like your your 4-h club you know and so like the teachers saw the the crowd i hung out with you know and i was an oddity because i was not your typical kid that does you know those types of classes and um so he would kind of like i remember i was in trouble like on probation at the time and and um you know, I would, I'd gotten in a couple of fist fights when I was 15 and, and gotten an assault charge. So he was always, the teacher was always trying to figure out like what my story was. Cause like there was times where I'd get called the principal's office, like, you know, all the time. And, and so like, he, he kind of was trying to figure like, you're, you know, he basically was the first person besides my parents to really tell me like, dude, you have a lot of potential. Like mm-hmm. you have a gift, like you, you, you're, what do you, you know? And at that age, like you, you brush it off. You're like, yeah, whatever, you know? Um, but looking back now, I think, um, that's something that really stuck with me because I remember thinking like, man, I would, that wouldn't that be cool to be a teacher and, and be that kind of teacher. You know, there's your teachers that just go to work, punch in, punch out. But then there's your teachers that like, that's their life calling. Like they know deep in their soul, that they're supposed to teach young people mm. and, and cultivate the next generation. And, and so that was what I wanted to do for, a, for a long time was be a teacher. And I, you know, um, it, uh, it kind of stuck with me and, um, it, uh, it kept me, I don't, I don't know what would have happened in high school if I wouldn't have had that, that foundation. Cause most of my friends dropped out. A lot yeah. of them did, or they went to the ALC. Yeah. Um, but I found that 
it wasn't necessarily how smart you were. A lot of times it had to do with like schmoozing. Yeah. If the teachers liked you, you know, you had a lot easier time getting good grades. And, and that was when I started becoming very adept at the art of schmoozing. You know, I was really good at extra credit, you know, like I, I would be failing and I'd be like, all right, listen, teach. Uh, what, what can I, I'd pitch them some kind of extra credit project worth a thousand points, you know, to get my credit back up. And, um, you know, it didn't always work, but sometimes the teachers would be like, you know what? All right. If you can actually do that, go ahead and do it. And so like one time I tried growing hydroponic tomatoes, it didn't work. Um, but you know, I, I, I got a good grade for effort, but, um, so yeah, I started kind of schmoozing and finding my way. And, and, um, I ended up graduating early with, uh, like a 3.5, um, because high school just became easy for me. And it wasn't because I, I was really smart or did all the homework or, or on time or anything. It was just because I knew how to get along with people and I knew how to do just enough in class, you know, and delegate the rest. And, um, so I took a lot of public speaking classes and speech and stuff because it just always came natural to me. But, um, the, the crime aspect of my life really changed, um, in my transition out of high school into early adulthood. Mm. And it was because I met a group of young men that were in their, most of them were like in their mid twenties. They, they moved in across the street from my parents' house and uh, they were renting this house. And it was this, this older gentleman that owned a window company and all the guys you know, that live there work for them. They're this whole crew and they're really cool guys. They like to party. They worked hard. They partied hard. They, they smoked a lot of weed. And so I fit in with them early on, like 16, 17. And I found that acceptance that I, that I was craving um, because they didn't know me when I was boxing or when I was, you know, all this, this stuff that I thought was who I was that my identity was tattooed. They just knew me. And it's funny, um, my brother, so my last name is Warren Key. And my brother's nickname was always Wanker. Mm. <laughs> and so I inherited the, the nickname Little Wanker. Mm-hmm. Little Wanker. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it sounds funny, but <laughs> um, it's uh, so I became Little Wanker, you know, and they're like, oh, Little Wanker, you know, like, so I, I would always um, I was part of the crew. Like I felt like I was accepted. And then um, that's when I started selling a lot of weed because I found out that they did. And they would give me weed to bring to school and sell. And um, so pretty soon this, this reputation is, is um, you know, kind of growing into a drug dealer, a tough guy, you know, just, just some hooligan. And um, they would, uh, they would let me party with them. They would have, you know, women over and I would get attention from women and just like it, I, they made me feel accepted and cool and and all those things that I was looking for. And so that was kind of when um, I started getting introduced to uh, other drugs mm. and uh, pretty much the first time I ever did any drug other than weed and alcohol was at that house, um, you know, except for like heroin and meth that didn't come along until later. Um, but as far as like ecstasy, cocaine, um, uh, mushrooms, you know, all, all the other kind of recreational party type drugs you can think of. And that's also when I started popping like Vicodin and Percocets. Mm. And, um, you know, at one point I got a prescription from a doctor 
from, I think I, I separated my shoulder and I had had this prescription and I think uh, they were like, oh, you got, what'd they give you? What'd they give you? They made a big deal out of it. You know, and they're like, oh man, get, you know, can I have one? <laughs> and so like, I was like, sure, I don't care. You know? And then uh, I decided to take a couple more to figure out what the big deal was. And that, you know, the first time I had like a really strong opiate high was like, I found the answer to life. That's how I felt. I was like, you know, this is what I've been missing for my whole life. And I didn't know the dangers of it. You know, they say that they're addictive, but like they say, everything's addictive. You know, drugs are bad. We get it. Don't just say no, we get it. Um, but I, I just kind of downplayed the, the danger because I didn't know the risk. And um, I graduated high school and I got into a job doing collections, um, a bill collector. I was a savage. I was promoted like four months into a lead collector because I was so ruthless on the phone. Like I would make people cry. <laughs> I didn't care. You know, um, I lost part of my humanity at that, that place. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, but I was making good money. And um, that's when I started to reinforce my belief in affection uh, based performance based affection. Mm-hmm. I would do good. So my manager would promote me. Mm-hmm. I would do good. So people seem to like me more. And so I started to, my, my ego started to kind of morph and change into more of a professional um, outlook of this, you know, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm doing a lot of drugs, but I'm also a businessman now because I, I make money. And um, I had been dating my high school sweetheart at the time. And we had ridden the bus together throughout junior high and um, started dating like my senior year. And then after she graduated, she started working at the same company I did. And um, I ended up uh, moving out of my parents' house and she and I bought a house um, with my brother and we took the downstairs. He took the upstairs and life was good, you know, um, on the outside. Uh, I'm taking pills at this time, but I'm, I'm functioning, or mm-hmm. at least I thought I was functioning. And, um, I'm just trying to like gear in my, my thought process here. <laughs> um, so. And had you had tried heroin at this point or I had not right. heroin came later on. Um, heroin was always, I would never do that. Same yeah. thing with like, like a, a syringe yeah. um, and meth. I would never do that. That was one of those lines that we, yeah. That was they the were one not like, I'm gonna cross. Yeah, those people are, are good. You know, I'm I don't have a problem because I don't do X. Exactly. I, so um that was not a problem, you know, at, at that point in time. And so we bought this house and things were going really good. And and um it was this was 2007. And going into 2008 um was when things started to fall apart. Um, this this facade that I created of my life and how how happy I was and you know um, how successful I was like it was all a big lie because like I was barely holding it together in in like oh eight and I had um, gotten out of collections because I knew like my my uh, gifts were best served somewhere else um, because in my mind like you know, I was going to be like the CEO of, of Apple or something. Right. 
<laughs> um, and so um, I, I got into doing mortgages and personal loans. And this yeah. is in 2008. Yeah. So like at first it was really good, you know, but then the market crashed. Yeah. And pretty soon I'm selling subprime mortgage rates for like 10%, uh. you know, um, and uh, that was also the year that me and my friends started getting hooked up with the OC brand of Oxycontin. Now, this is the, I don't know if it's the Watson brand or whatever. I know that there's that big family that, that took a huge lawsuit. Um, yes. Uh, Purdue. Was it Purdue? Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family. Yes. yes the Sackler family. Yeah. So um, I don't know what it was, but there were so many Oxycontin pills everywhere they were flooding the market with them that's why yeah Yeah, it was 2008 2009 they were everywhere it was an intentional yeah corporate strategy to flood the market with them. it was yeah like a satanic version of capitalism basically Mm -hmm. um you know bottom line no matter what yes and so yeah there were these pill mills and you'd go in you'd see a doctor you'd pay 300 bucks cash and uh no insurance was involved you didn't have to run it through any insurance systems. You just paid cash and you'd get your pills every month, you know, 80 milligram. Here's 120, 80 milligram Oxycontins. Well, back then the value of Oxycontin was like the base rate was a buck a milligram. That was sure. like, it's like uh, your trade rate at, yeah. at the, you know, at the stock market that it was a buck a milligram. And so they were really, really expensive to use. And so, you know, the, the only way I found to like be able to, like afford it was to spend all my money on my paycheck and then also try to sell some. And so we got hooked up with a guy that worked at a pharmacy and um, it was his job to do the inventory. And so when stuff would come in and he would put it in the computer and then put it on the shelf, he would mix around numbers or whatever he would do. And then he would bring, you know, and so we had this unlimited supply of these pills. Sure. And so I was, you know, this is also when I started to um, snort oxy. Um, this is my method of drug use change from, um, eating pills and smoking weed to snorting pills. Mm. Um, and the old Oxycontins, they were so popular and dangerous because you could do anything with, it was raw Oxy, Oxycodone, pure Oxycodone. So you could take that coating off and you could eat it. You could snort it. You could smoke it. You could shoot it. You could, you know, whatever you, any way you want. And so, um, my my method became snorting. I I would start snorting them everywhere in the bathroom, at work, on the toilet, in the bathroom, at the gas station. Um, but then that's when the withdrawal started. Um, and what's crazy because about- the frequency and the amount that yeah. you're yep. using tolerance. now is yeah, accelerating rapidly. Yes, the tolerance is yeah. going way up. You know, I'm, I'm needing double the amount to get the same effect. And um, it's so my, my tolerance is is getting really high. So I'm having to spend more money. And you're and developing ha- now a legit habit or legit habit. Yeah. My body is now physically becoming dependent. You know, yeah. My body loves the shit mm-hmm. like, OK. And if I don't have it, my body is screaming at me like, where is it? Go get it. I don't care if you don't have money. Go get it. Find a way to get it. I need yeah. it. Exactly. So now, now things are getting pretty bad because now I'm, I'm getting sick. I'm missing work. 
Yeah. Now I'm realizing why I'm getting sick this whole last year, this anxiety and these like cold sweats haven't been a mental health problem. Well, yeah, they have been, but they're, they're chemically induced. Right. You know, this whole time I thought I've had depression and anxiety. Really. I've just been like semi dope sick for the last year right. off and on. But we're so disconnected from our bodies yep. that we don't make that connection. Not at all. Not at first. It took right. a while. And um, this is sounds like where unmanageability is starting to. Exactly. It became unmanageable. Yeah. It, it really did it. It, it. it became to the point where um, I was lying to my my uh, my. It wasn't my daughter's mother yet. You know, it was my girlfriend. This is before my right before my daughter was born. But I was lying to her. She would use pills off and on. She didn't have a huge habit like I did. So I, I, I hid a lot of that from her. But it just all kind of started crumbling down and my parents were noticing I wasn't acting the same again. Cause they had no clue yet. Mm. You know, I was still this perfect son that, that moved out and got a house and had a job and, and was doing, you know, kicking life in the balls. And so you had the Jekyll and Hyde thing going on still. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. And I used that metaphor a lot because yeah. that's, that's really what it was like for me. Cause it, it was two people living inside me, living two different lives. And um, so relate to that, yeah. keeping up the appearances on yes. the outside for my folks, yep. for my boss, for my coworkers, keeping that facade of manageability. Yeah. I'm not an addict. I'm not an alcoholic. Right. Everything's cool. Uh, but really, it's not because I've got this beast inside of me yeah. that you know, on my best day, I could just barely keep a lid on it. And on my right. worst day, it's completely fucking out of control. It uh, It is. And, and it's and so um, finally, I think uh, it got to the point. So I had gotten out of the mortgage industry and was able to finally get a job um, doing outside sales, which is what I wanted all along. All along, I knew I had a sales uh, mentality. I had a good sales personality. Um, you know, business to business type sales. And um, so I got into doing same day courier service, um, selling uh, delivery services to companies uh, like for same day delivery, like priority shipping and stuff. Dynamics was the company. And um, I got this job making more money than ever before. Um, and what had happened, they offered me the job. And when I went to go put in my two weeks notice, the the financial firm I was working for uh, gave me a counter offer to keep me because I was I was doing pretty good um, selling ten percent mortgages and um, so they didn't want to they didn't want to get rid of me and um, I ended up staying. Well, a month later, the the woman from the company came back and was like, "Listen, like you know, we still haven't filled this position, and now we have a higher position opening that we really need to fill, and we think that you'd be a good fit." And it was an outside sales position, so. Um, I couldn't turn it down. It was too much money. It was too close to where I wanted to go, the direction. I wanted to get out of mortgages in 08, just like anybody that was doing mortgages at the time. And so um, I started doing that and uh, I started using more. And um, I, uh, I just, it wasn't a good fit for me at the time because I was so young. I was like 19 and I'm going into these corporate settings where I'm telling people to basically get rid of all their delivery vehicles and outsource it with my delivery vehicles. And I have no credibility. I'm this young kid walking around clueless. And so um, I just didn't do well at that job. And um, I ended up, uh, I ended up getting fired because I, I would, I think I, I was, I was nodding off at work 
because I was so high and I would nod off. And then I would like come to, and I would like have to like log fake phone calls. Cause I didn't even know where I left off. Cause I was so high. I was so messed up and, and, and nodding out so much that I was nodding out in meetings. I was, you know, I was lying about places I was going, you know, as an outside sales, I'm supposed to visit all these places during the week, my customers, you know, so I'm lying about all this stuff and it's just getting out of control fast. And then eventually, um, you know, I get fired. And um, at this point, it was right around the time I got fired that I found out my, my daughter's mother was pregnant with my daughter. And so that hit, and that was a whole new, like, okay, now I really need to get clean because I'm, I'm about to be a father. And, you know, you would think that would be enough for someone to get clean. You know, the fact of, of being a parent and that responsibility would be enough for someone to finally get their shit together. And I, I beat myself up about that for years, um, being a bad father and, and all this and that. And so um, I ended up going to treatment for the first time in, I think it was 2009. And um, I went to, uh, where was it? it was unity. And, um, it was back then they had a opiate program that was like, basically you're locked in and, uh, you're not leaving. There wasn't any suboxone there. What, you know, there wasn't. Um, so I got clean and, and went through this withdrawal for like the first time in my life since I started doing opiates and came out of treatment. And, um, you know, I had a good outlook. I was really positive about staying clean. I wanted it, you know? Um, and I knew I was going to be a father. So I was excited. And, um, but you know, when you make plans, life tends to chuckle and say, okay, let me know how that works. And so, um, I had started journaling like a couple of years before that. And I wanted to come clean with my daughter's mom, you know, about everything. And so I let her read my journals, which were raw. I mean, my journals were like, the like if there was ever like a physical object of like my identity and authenticity it's in those journals that mm. I have. because it's like there's no reason to lie when you're journaling to yourself and that's part of what i turned into a podcast was based on those journals um so i let her read them and um it, it was too much for her. Sure. the depth of my uh my subterfuge, the depth of my, my deceit, it just was too much. And I don't blame her for that. Um, and so we ended up splitting up and, um, I found out later on that she, uh, she had been seeing a guy while I was in treatment that was friends with our neighbors and she ended up getting married to him and moving in with him right away. And at this point, my daughter was born. Um, yeah, I forgot to mention that. So when my daughter was born, it was within that like first year after she was born that I went to treatment. Mm -hmm. So she was about six months old, maybe when I went yeah. to treatment, you know? Yeah. I can identify with when I went to treatment this, this last time just over seven years ago. And I finally surrendered to this thing mm -hmm. uh, after 15 plus years of trying to manage my addiction and alcoholism and two previous attempts at recovery finally got honest, finally surrendered and was so overburdened with guilt that I proceeded to tell my then <laughs> wife all the things, <laughs> Nick, yeah. yeah, that I did that she didn't know about. And 
we got divorced, Nick. Okay. Because it was also too much for her. It turns out if you're working the 12 steps that are in order for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a great idea to do step nine. Yeah. Even before you do step one, it's not right. It's not a good idea. Yeah. I just want to make amends here. Right. Here's right. my <laughs> and, and and that was selfish, right? I was right, doing that yeah. for me. I wasn't doing that of for her. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh so yeah, it was uh, you know, it crushed me because you know, as a sensitive man, you know, this was like my first great love. Hundred percent. You know, we rolled the school bus together. 100%. We were like Forrest Gump and Jenny, peas 100%. and carrots. And it type. doesn't it doesn't help the situation that she immediately is with another person. No, that was the low, that yeah. was like the, the cherry on top, you right. know. Um, and I didn't find out about that until later, which I kind of knew because she moved in with him right away. Yeah. And that that was a red flag. Like, what the fuck? I'm not I'm no dummy, yeah. you know. Um, and so, like, I didn't last very long staying clean. Yeah. A um, lot of overwhelming emotions. That we don't yeah. know what to do with, right? Yeah, no clue. Right. And at this point, I'll um I might add that we tried selling the house because we we're splitting up. There's three names on the title of the house. Um n- there's no way you're gonna sell a house in 2008. We bought it foreclosed for 199000 it appraised at 240. A year, two years later, it was appraising at 140. Yep. So I lost a hundred thousand dollars in value in one year, mm. one a year and a half. So we tried doing a short sale and our realtor was like, well, Bank of America won't let you do a short sale unless you're, you're delinquent on your, your mortgage. So basically told us to quit paying our Pay house your- payment. So if you quit paying your house payment, then we can sell your house for you. You just won't. It'll be a short sale. So we tried that. Couldn't sell it. So now we're foreclosed. So I'm living in this house by myself. But by this point, my brother's moved out. Um, she's moved out. And I'm in this house by myself. That's, you know, I think I had like, I don't know how long they give you before they kick you out, but you know, um, it was just a really dark place for me in that house. Cause I just was completely lost. And, and so I, um, event ended up moving back in with my parents and, um, maintained a facade of, of being clean for, I don't know exactly how long it was, but, um, I slowly started to get my life back together to where it was manageable. And part of that, um, I started like, I tried out a methadone clinic and I went to a methadone clinic and um, found out that I don't need a drug dealer anymore Mm. because mm, the methadone clinic was all I needed alongside with some other cocktail items I would throw in like benzos. And, you know, I, I figured out a good mix to, to get me where I wanted to be. And I was, you know, there was a time where I was more fucked up on the methadone than I was on the oxy mm-hmm. because I, you know, I had Xanax in my system and this big cocktail, but so that became my new thing. I would go to the methadone clinic like every day. And then pretty soon I would get takeouts. And, um, every time I'd go in they'd be like, how do you feel? You know, do you, do you think you need a higher dose? Well, you're talking to a bunch of addicts. Of course, we want a higher dose, you know, don't even ask, just just bump me up every time. And so I got up to this ridiculous, I don't even remember, I think it was like 140 milligrams a day of methadone. And so um, I was functioning, but not really. 
I was completely emotionally um, crippled at this point still, you know? Um, and so I, uh, I got a job as an inside sales rep for a company um, that did manufacturing for CAD cam software. So metal manufacturing, yeah. like machining, yeah. you know, machine stamping. Software. And yep. Right. Yep. So I would sell this software to these companies that would basically read these design files and tell their machines how to do what they did. And um, I did really well in that sitting as well, because I just like I did in like boxing and collections and everything else that I committed to, I, I decided that it was, was performance gonna, based. It was performance based. Right. And I, I decided that I was going to be good at it, right. you know, and so I took it upon myself to teach myself solid work um cad uh all these different softwares that are like you know for 3d design and uh machining you know th these are like people go to dunwoody to learn this stuff you know and so like i i didn't I, like i wasn't a an engineer by any means but i was i was like i knew way more than your average sales person um on the technical side and so my first year there i freaking like I, it was my job to call these companies that needed to renew their software subscription to update. And, and these aren't like, this isn't like your, your antivirus update. These are like 15 to 50 to a hundred thousand dollars software systems. I mean, these are all over the country, huge um, companies like um, Lockheed Martin and Los Alamos. Like these are like huge defense contracting companies, some of them. And so like, my like i'm just like found this new world of like corporate you know i'm going to trade shows and i'm you know and so um i'm managing and that first year um my manager was uh he, he was like they're they're all impressed you know i did really good and so um they bumped me up at, at this is about 2008 2009 i was uh, a regional sales manager for for edge camp um, which is a Vero software company. I don't know if they've been bought out since then, but so like that pride and ego's back, you know, I've, I've licked my wounds. Um, I decided, well, I'm going to start getting, you know, I'm still young. I can box still. And so a friend of mine had, uh, we, we started working out together in training and um, we opened up a gym and it was called 10 K MMA. And it was a, you know, a mixed martial arts gym in Forest Lake. And we, you know, we started, you know, getting a, a, a good group of people, some teammates and um, started uh, fighting again and competing and, and coaching. And, you know, so um, I got in, I got in good shape again, you know, so this is like 2009 going into 2010, 2012. So um, at this point I'm still using, but it's like, you know, I've got my methadone, so I'm not crashing and I'm not. Uh, I'm not using oxys anymore. I don't think at this time point in time, I think I lost all those connections or I think at that point, maybe eventually they cracked down on the oxys. They did, yeah. you know, and they quit making the, the OC ones. And so, um, so I kind of moved on and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm dating and I'm, I'm partying and, and um, making I'm good gonna, money. Yeah. Making good money. I'm living at my parents. I'm not paying rent. Um, a lot of disposable income. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know, I'm living it up. I'm coaching at this gym. Um, there's a really attractive group of women that, that attend the gym and, and become friends with my group of friends, you know? And so, um, you know, it weekends turned into a lot of like debaucherous fun, you know? Um, we would go to events where we would, you know, my friends would fight and I would, I would coach. And then the after parties were epic and, um, 
it was just like a good lifestyle, like for, for who I was at that time. Um, and when I say good, I don't mean healthy. <laughs> I just mean, it was, it was a fun lifestyle for me at the time. Yeah. It got me out of my, you know, isolation Your because funk. that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm most dangerous to myself when I'm isolated. I think that that goes to without saying with most addicts, Absolutely. you know, when I'm isolated, I'm at my, my most dangerous to myself. And so, um, I, I started living it up and I'm, I'm, you know, making a lot of money. And then, uh, I bought a Cadillac, um, uh, STS, you know, just, just, you know, I was pimping. I, in my mind, I was, you know, I was pimping it out, thugging. And, um, you know, so like I had this, this ego again, that was like, you know, I'm this mid twenties business type guy that's making money and coaching and, and partying and, um, you know, like I was the coolest person I knew at that point. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> it all changed when I met a, a, a woman <laughs> that uh, I um, became involved with and it became really toxic. So I ended up, uh, so I moved out, I rented a house eventually, it was like 2014, I think in East St. Paul. And, um, you know, not the best area. I don't know why. I think it was just uh, a friend of mine owned the house or something. Um, yeah, she owned it and she rented it. So, um, I had let this woman move in with me because she was in an abusive relationship with her boyfriend who was addicted to meth. And it was my job to save her because she was really attractive mm-hmm. and I was, you know, I was really attracted to her and I was this really strong male figure, this wealthy, you know, like quote wealthy, like facade of wealthy. Yeah. You had your tough guy identity back yeah. and then you had your successful professional identity added to that right and you were going to save this damsel exactly distress exactly yeah it's your typical case and um and uh so that's what i went about doing i I started uh and she she used drugs as well so we would use together and um we she moved in and and um you know i didn't want to pressure her to be my girlfriend because that that's not i don't care she doesn't have to be my girlfriend because i'm you know I don't care. I don't have feelings, you know, but I did, you know, I started falling for this chick because, you know, this woman, um, because she was really attractive and, and, um, it was just like, you know, she, she had a sense of like, uh, adventure and like, it just really kind of fed my sense of adventure. And, um, it was like, she became like my partner in crime, you know, we would, you know, and so, um, I developed really strong feelings for her and, um, it just all started going south you know, this is uh, at a time when she would come home with cash and I couldn't figure out where she was getting all this cash. Mm. And it turns out she was doing some things on online with massages. And, um, you know, instead of kicking her out or, or like, you know, like basically being that's nuts, um, I started getting on board with it. You know, I was cool. So instead it. of drawing a boundary and say and communicating that boundary. Yep. Now, I'm, I'm all in on this. Yeah. You're, as long as you bring the money back here, I'm cool with it, you know? And so um, then all of a sudden she got this, uh, this client that was like an older gentleman, <laughs> like older, you know, business owner, millionaire. This is like a real, like, this isn't like a fake mid twenties wealthy guy. This is like a real Mercedes driving business owner, you know? Um, and so she like flocked to him and um, you know, uh, she would, uh, he, he paid her to quit doing back page and it was like all cool then, you know, like instead of having all these clients, you just have one who's this rich guy 
But then he would like come over to my house. And it would, and I remember one time my buddy was over and he's like, who the fuck is this guy? And like, I just shook my head. I was like, bro, please don't ask. (laughs) (laughs) Because my friends from childhood had no clue. Sure. You know, this is a, this is like, this is Mr. Hyde. You know, they're used to Dr. Jekyll, you know, I think that's how it, yeah. So, um, but he's like, what the fuck is going on? And I was like, dude, so here's the thing. This is her friend. And he just like, what do you mean? This is her friend. And like, it just, it was very apparent that it was not a normal situation, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, a lot of drama and uh, she super a, dysfunctional, super dysfunctional. Yeah. And she had a, a, a sibling that was uh, also an addict. Mm-hmm. And um, so I ended up becoming friends with her, her sister who was, was a heroin addict. And um it was through her, her sister's friend and this guy that they knew that I started doing heroin. Um, and it was also through her that I, st- uh, I used meth for the first time. You know, um, she introduced me to this, this world of, you know, um, amphetamines and sex and this whole world there is of like mixing the two. And it's like a culture almost, um, you know, that most subculture, yeah. A subculture of, of, of addiction, you know, your motel eight, you know, like, uh, just moving from hotel to hotel type mm-hmm. lifestyle as a, mm-hmm. you know, as a working woman or as a drug dealer, you know, just that lifestyle. And so, um, things just kind of came crashing down quick. I, I had gotten another job, um, by it was not a direct competitor to the company I was working for because it was in the sheet metal industry instead of the machining industry. And so they offered me a job <clears throat> making even more money and um, working from home. And um, I had like three interviews. They flew me out to Cincinnati for my final interview, um, offered me the job. And this was, uh, you know, an even bigger company. And, um, you know, I was making really good money and I was, um, you know, I was on track. Like if I wasn't an addict and I would have kept going down that road, I don't know. I'd be I'd be in a position a lot financially different than I am today. Um, but it just wasn't in the cards. Mm-hmm. And and I used to beat myself up about that because yeah. like, dude, I had it all, you know, and I lost it. I, no, I didn't have it all. I was miserable, you know? And so um, eventually there was a big falling out with, with this young woman. Um, my daughter was visiting for a weekend and there was an argument and it just got to be too much. You know, once my daughter's mother got involved and started threatening to not let my daughter come over because of some of the stuff, that's when I, you know, I drew a line and she moved in with this guy and it, you know, um, I, you know, but I, in the meantime, I was using again, um, I started using heroin and, um, quit, quit going to the methadone clinic. And then, um, then this, this guy, um, and, and, I didn't even start doing heroin until I was like super sick. Like, no, like this is how a lot of people turn to heroin. And I just want to kind of highlight. And I did too. So this is important because I think this is is. a really instructive situation to illuminate. Yeah. So what happens to a lot of opiate addicts is, you know, when you're, when you're getting a prescription, you know, Yes, they have to come from somewhere, whether it's a doctor or somebody's getting it from, you know, direct or whatever, but um, they're not, they're not like um, a lifelong secure supply line. They run out. And um, when people run out of, of their 
their drug of choice, you know, um, their body reacts. And with opiates, it just, it, it's, it's a lot more physically dramatic than it is with, with a lot of other drugs, um, except for alcohol. <clears throat> And we are biologically programmed to avoid pain and discomfort. And there's an extreme amount of pain and discomfort when a human being is withdrawing from opiates. Yeah. So I was, I was extremely like, um, you know, you I'm like shit in my pants, cold sweats, um, shivers like on your chest and your arms that are cold, but they're also their anxiety. And I don't know how to explain how you can have anxiety, like running up and down your body, but you can, it's like a shiver of dread. Like it just kind of comes in waves of this dark cloud of doom. Like the world is ending and like, you're, you're just crushing. You're, you're like, you're crushing inside and it's so heavy. And all you need is just some oxy or some, Percocet, well, same thing, Vicodin, alcohol, whatever your drug of choice is, you know, but for opiates, it was like my body knew that I was potentially one phone call away from feeling amazing. And so when you're trying to get clean off of drugs and you're going through a withdrawal, you really can't get out of that mindset because your body is constantly reminding you. It's screaming at you at the top of its lungs and... That's when heroin yes, the can take hold because it's less expensive and it's highly available, right? And yeah, it's easier to find. It's less expensive. It's stronger. Um, it's, you know, it, it's more reliable. And then, um, and then you keep using that reasoning and that logic. Well, if I want to save money, I can use an, a syringe. If I use IV, I don't need as much mm-hmm. because it, it's it's more percent of it goes into my body. You know, the, they call that bioavailability. And look at body. that rationalization that we could tell ourselves that this is why this is a good idea. And this is yeah. why it's OK, even yeah. though I said I would never cross that line. Yeah. Even though people are dying everywhere from it, you know. Um, so I started I started shooting up and um, started hanging out with really shady people. Mm. Um and so I uh, ended up moving back in with my parents because I lost my job. I ran out of unemployment. Um, and then eventually they found out I was using heroin. I think they found a syringe or something. And um, I don't remember the exact moment or time. Um, you know, I think it, a lot of a lot of that time kind of is blurred together, you know, because it's, I, I was high for so long. But, it, you know it didn't take long for me to overdose for the first time. And I was um, eventually got linked up in North Minneapolis with um, kind of the heroin operation over there. Uh, and so I would go and, and uh, meet up with different people um, to, to pick up and I would drive down the street and I would pull over on the, on the street and I would, I would use, I would shoot up <clears throat> and then I would drive off. Well, one time I, I shot up and then I, I, I overdosed and I crashed onto the side of, uh, the street. And, uh, I woke up on the pavement, um, with paramedics standing over me. And, um, you know, I remember being in the back of the ambulance and I, the only thing I could think of was to call my mom, you know, I'm a mama's boy, no shame in it. 
Um, but I was just so low in the world. Like the only thing I just wanted my mom. <laughs> um, so I called my mom and I was like, mom, like I told her, I was just so sick of it. You know, like I was like, how did I get here? And I ended up in the hospital and, um, I went to Fairview Riverside and, um, you know, that was my first rock bottom. I've, I've kind of identified a few throughout my life, but, um, so yeah, I went to Fairview, uh, Riverside. I did their their uh their um detox program and um they've got a wonderful detox program by the way i've i've been there a few times um i don't i haven't been there in a few years but i know that they uh they have a program that'll put you on suboxone short term and get you off it real quick um and and i'll kind of i should highlight that too i was on um so methadone when i went in this time uh to fairview i had still been using off and on from takeout doses i had saved and I was buying some from, a, from someone I knew. So I was still using methadone because it was really good to prevent me from going into withdrawal. Yeah. And so um, when I went into detox, they gave me uh, the buprenorphine, which is Suboxone or Subutex, it's called. And um, they gave it to me too early. And so I went into what's called precipitated withdrawal, which means like your body, because like it, it basically forces you to go through the withdrawal process at the speed of light. Like mm-hmm. it, it flips you, like it flips you immediately into withdrawal and your body starts rejecting all that opiate receptor crap. You know, um, I don't know this chemistry of it, but that's kind of how it happens. And so I was really sick. Like I had 104 fever. Only time I've ever had a fever going through withdrawal. Um, and it, I think it was just cause it was so violent, like the, the flip, you know, um, and so, uh, yeah, I was really sick and, um, same thing happened, um, when they brought me in and gave me Narcan, um, Narcan flipped me right away. And so, um, I try, like at this point, I, I, I was like serious, like at this point I had admitted my life was unmanageable. Mm-hmm. I was way past that. Mm-hmm. I had no, like, I knew I was an addict. I knew mm-hmm. I was unmanageable. Mm-hmm. I knew I had a problem, you know? Mm-hmm but I didn't know how to surrender. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know, you know, and, and, um, and so like, I just, I took this roundabout way to recovery, you know, even back then. And it just kept fucking things up for me because I wanted my own way. I couldn't get away from wanting my own way. And it, Mm -hmm. it fucked. Like I ended up going through Fairview Riverside and they kicked me out like three days before I was due to graduate because they came in and did a room check and I I'm snoring and I got my phone on my chest. You're not supposed to have a phone treatment, but that rule didn't apply to me because I wasn't like the rest of the addicts. You know, I wasn't going to bring drugs in. I just wanted my phone. Um, and so I got kicked out and my parents are pissed and you know, this turned into a cycle, you know, um, I would move back in with my parents and then I would relapse. Yeah. And I would manipulate them as long as I could. Right. And, and um, it became a cycle. And then eventually I tried uh, Teen Challenge. I did. I went to Teen Challenge. There's this huge intervention my family had for me because they were losing me. You yeah. know, I, I was I was closing off to like emotionally didn't and give a shit anymore. Probably terrified that you're going to overdose again. Yeah, constantly. My mom was always calling me, you know, they 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 never had a good night's sleep, yeah. you know, unless I was in jail you know, or treatment. And so, um, yeah, it just, it was this cycle. And I I was, you know, I, I wanted it, but I didn't want it that bad. You know, like I I would, I just like, I don't know how things changed from 
truly surrendering to like your half-assed fake like and and i like to like i like sometimes when i share my blog i talk in a metaphor of like a battle or a war because that's really kind of a good way for me to look at my recovery because like it was like uh, i read this book called think and grow rich by napoleon hill amazing book changed my life i recommend it to anybody looking you know, for any sort of self-help material, but he has this uh, metaphor about life and business um, that fits really well with recovery. And he talks about this general who wants to conquer this, this whole country and, and conquer this nation. And he brings his troops on like Vikings and they hit the shore. And then he turns around and he says, burn all the ships because there's no turning back. We can't retreat. And that's the mindset that I needed to cultivate for my recovery. Because if I leave even a little sailboat back around the corner in a, a paddle boat, a, anything, a log that floats, I'm jumping off and I'm heading away. If there's any way to me to, to turn back, you know, and that, because that's how manipulative, crafty and cunning my addiction is. And it sounds like then, although part of you wanted to get better part of you wanted mm-hmm. to recover there was also a part of you that was holding reservations yeah and yeah. hanging on to but maybe i can do it again maybe i can manage it again right. maybe i'm not really an addict maybe it's just a fit maybe maybe yeah. just maybe and you're yeah, holding maybe on I to can, reservations yeah maybe i can drink right. maybe i can you know maybe i can just drink on weekends maybe i can well, let's just get high this weekend, you know, or maybe one, I don't know how many, one more times I've had, you know, and it's just that, that um, rationalization in your head. Absolutely. It circles. I'm interested in this intervention. So ultimately this culminates into an intervention. Yes. So it, it, it turned into an intervention. Did you know the intervention was coming? No, I didn't No, And it wasn't like, it was like my mom, my dad, my brother, and my cousin. Mm. And, and, um, and like, they sat me down and they were like, listen, you know, like, this is how it is. And like, you're, you know, and they lay, they gave me an ultimatum and they wanted me to go to teen challenge. You know, Uh, my cousin had talked to people. And so like, uh, so I was like, finally, I, I, they went out. I said, yeah, let's do it. I went into their short-term program. Um, and I, I wasn't sure, you know, where life was going at this point, you know? And so I, you know, I was open. I was like, all right, you know, let's figure out, you know, like I, I really wanted it. You know, I wanted to be clean. I wanted this life. And this is a, you know, I grew up Catholic, but I've always been a really spiritual person. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always believed in a higher power. And so um, the faith aspect of Teen Challenge really kind of, um, it kind of hit hit with me because it was like, it, it touched on something that had always been missing in my life, not missing, but it touched on an area that I've always held really close to myself, which is my spirituality and my belief in my place in the universe. And so, um, and so when I decided to go to their long-term program, it was kind of like a whole spiritual experience for me. And it was my intuition and my spiritual instinct and my higher power, all these things that I have in my faith that, that help me understand my spirituality telling me that, I should do it. It know? reawakened so, your spirituality. It did. It totally did. It totally reawakened and it stoked the fires and, and it, um, it turned into gasoline 
you know, cause I, I decided to go to this long-term program and um, just like many things in my life, when I decide I want to do something, you know, I, I do it. I, I, I pretty much invest all of my attention to what I'm doing and, and what I'm trying to understand. And so I did that with the Bible and with um, Christianity. And um, I, uh, you know, I, I spent uh, 12 months at Teen Challenge that, <laughs> and I say the first time because I had to go twice because mm-hmm. I, uh, I can't do anything the easy way, but um, I got really spiritual. You know, I was ready to go save everyone. Sure. You know, I'm taking all my homies to heaven. Yeah. With me. Yeah. You know, and so like I had this, this, uh, this like reawakening and, and um, I was really focused on my spirituality and my faith in, in Christ. And, and um, it got to be kind of uh, unhealthy. I think, sure. I think it was, uh, it got to be over spiritualizing and mm-hmm. over um, religious. And so um, we're not t- the best with balance. Us no, not at all. <laughs> addicts and alcoholics, even yeah. on our road to recovery. Right. Balance isn't something we're super good at. No, especially in no. the beginning. Yeah. And so like I, you know, here I am, like I thought I was like, you know, a, a messiah of the the sure. addict world. I wanted sure. everybody to, to get sure. clean. And so yeah. um, follow Nick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, but the ego, it was, it was, a, the ego was, it was a, just a different kind of ego. Mm-hmm. It was a more holy ego. Yeah, right. It was more righteous, yeah. um, the pride and ego. And so it was ego dressed up in religious clothing. Yes. Yeah. The Bible says a whitewashed tomb. Yes. You know, they call it a whitewash, clean Indeed. and white on the, you know, and inside decaying corpse. Indeed. And so um, my last month of Teen Challenge, I had gotten in trouble for, uh, fraternizing, which is a funny term for uh, talking to women, right? When you're not supposed to. And so um, I started dating this woman um, after she left the program. I was still in the program, big no no. And they pulled me in and, and gave me a scolding and said, We're going to make you stay another month. And I said, No, you're not. And uh, they said, Well, there's the door. And I said, Fine, I don't need you anyway. I've got God now. And um, I don't need any of you. <laughs> and so I left and uh, didn't know where I was going, called my parents. Of course, they're pissed. They're expecting me to graduate in like a month or two. And so um, I went into a sober uh, sober house in Brooklyn Park. I didn't last very long, um, not very long at all. People were using in, in the house and it was just, uh, you know, and so I relapsed within a year, within six months, I was back at Teen Challenge. And this is now we're getting in 2018. So this is, we're getting closer to the present and, um, you know, and so I, my second time at Teen Challenge was a little bit more humbling, you know, I still had that spiritual fire, but it was a lot dimmer because I had went out into the world and fell again and realized that like, you know, it's going to take more than a supernatural effort by someone other than myself to, to, to stay clean, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and so, uh, it's going to take more than a spiritual experience. Yes. It's going to take effort and, and a lot of effort. And so, um, you know, I, I realized like, okay, I don't have it figured out, you know, um, but I was still spiritually open. So that's when my journey started about kind of learning more than just Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up best friends with a, a young boy that came from Bosnia in sixth grade. This is like 95 or whatever back in during the war in Yugoslavia and his family's Muslim. 
And um, he's one of my really good friends. And um, I'm friends with his, his friends, his family. They accepted me like I was their own, you know, and all these people, they're all Muslim. And I've received nothing but love from these people. And same thing with a lot of my friends that are Muslim. They're all really caring people, really loyal people. And so um, after 9-11 happened, you know, obviously there's a lot of Islamophobia and stuff. And so, um, so like I started to kind of, I wanted to kind of figure it all out. Like, where does, where does this all fit in the world? So, you know, um, started reading a lot of other texts, you know, about like, you know, the Quran and um, Hindu and Buddha, all these, you know, all these different faiths. And, and so that started a, a, a spiritual journey that hasn't ended yet. It's still going. And um, so I, I did finish Teen Challenge and um, graduated, went to their leadership program, doing really well. I'm, I'm uh, working for them now in this program called Know the Truth. So I'm going to high schools and middle schools, sharing my story mm-hmm. to kids about drugs and alcohol. And, mm-hmm. and it's re-sparking this fire that I had back in high school of being a teacher. Mm-hmm. I had that same feeling with speaking that I did when I thought I wanted to teach, when I would help mm-hmm. teach or coach, mm-hmm. when I would coach people in MMA and stuff. It fed that same whatever it is inside me that that enjoys helping people like that. It fed into that. So, you know, I really was really passionate about speaking and, and, and sharing with kids and stuff. And so I did really good for a while, but I was living over off of Chicago and Franklin in, in South Minneapolis, you know, right, right off the, right in the heart of it. Yeah. I mean, this is right in the heart of South Minneapolis where, you know, every, and so I, I remember it started with, uh, with Kratom, you know, I was driving and I went to a gas station, they were selling Kratom and Kratom has been known to have opiate effects. And I tried that, you know, because it's not illegal and they weren't drug testing for it, you know? And, um, I don't know what happened. It, It didn't take long for, for me to, uh, to fall. And, and, um, then I started meeting people out there, um, off Chicago and Franklin. And I, you know, I'm, uh, there was another couple of first times, you know, first time smoking crack first time, you know, um, first time buying crack, uh, first time seeing a lot of things, first time seeing someone shot, someone stabbed, um, first time, you know, first time seeing all these things. And, and it's like, uh, you know, all that progress I made, working for teen challenge, feeling the spirit of God or whatever it was. It didn't take long at all for it to get snuffed out. Once I hit the streets, mm-hmm. once I hit those streets, that fire, that faith, that sense of purpose mm-hmm. was snuffed like a candle. Mm-hmm. And it was like, here comes Mr. Hyde again. Yeah. And, uh, and he's coming was- out to play again. Yeah. And now we're not, we're not in the suburbs now. Now Mr. Hyde's in South Minneapolis, you know? And so, um, I, uh, I, I ended up relapsing hard and everyone knew, you know, I disappeared. I was out there, you know, my parents couldn't sleep at night. I'm out there, you know, hanging out with people I shouldn't be hanging out with, um, doing things I shouldn't be doing. And, you know, I was really dark. And uh, eventually I, I got pulled over, blacked out on Xanax. They took my car. Um, so there was a time I was I was sleeping on the train um, and going back and forth at night in the winter to stay warm from South St. Paul to Minneapolis, staying in hotels, um, you know, like lobbies, getting, you know, just uh, I was homeless. Yeah, you I, were was, homeless. I was I was on foot. I was homeless. 
Um, you know, you got to try to make it to the shelter before doors close, you know, stuff like that. Things that, that I never should have had to put myself through, but also things that millions and millions of people go through every day. Absolutely. And, um, it opened my eyes up to a lot of things. I bet. And so, um, you know, it took a lot. Uh, I'm trying to think of what really happened to make me, there was another overdose, um, that was really bad. And, um, eventually, uh, that last overdose that happened, um, I had left teen challenge. I went to a sober house and then I fell again. And, uh, a family friend of mine, a guy that um, knew my family growing up, he went to Teen Challenge with me the last time, and he lived in my parents' neighborhood, and I relapsed with him, and I was moving in with him, and this is when I got into meth really bad. Um, I'd never been big into meth. I never liked uppers a lot, but I started doing it a lot, and then I, I had an overdose experience with meth and heroin um, where I was, uh, I was at his house in, in the bathroom. And uh, I overdosed and I just remember um, they said they found me leaning over the, the bathtub with the water running. And I think what happened was, is I, I injected and I knew it was too much. So I, I think I, I turned the, the water on the bathtub and went to go like, put, like wash my face, like put cold water on my face to keep myself awake. That's what I think anyway. But I remember them pulling me out of the bathroom and putting me on the couch and I was like witnessing all of this from like out, outside of my body, basically. Like um, you were having I, an out of body. Yeah, experience. I, I, I was. I was. I was. Um, I, I remember him. Uh, I remember him arguing, you know, like, what are we going to do with them? Like, we're, you know, they were arguing about what to do. Um, and I at the time was like, why are they arguing? Like, I'm right here. And then I remember it hit me. I was like, they're arguing about my body mm -hmm. if I die. And um, I remember just coming in and out of it on the couch um, and just like slowly came back to reality um, and was like, I mean, it was it, like I knew, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was, I was lucky to still be alive mm -hmm. um it i don't know why it hit harder than other times that i've overdosed but it 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 kind of scared me a little bit because i i like i knew like that was something i couldn't explain you know um and it it kind of re-sparked the question of my spirituality and like uh, if if that would have been it what what have i left for my daughter and what have I left for the world? You know, if I would have died that night. And so um, it wasn't long after that, that my friend Ty, he was my roommate in Teen Challenge for a year. Um, really good guy. He died last year from an overdose from fentanyl. And that was, that's kind of like the new thing that's taken over is yeah. the fentanyl. I've had uh, so many friends mm -hmm. um, die from, from overdoses. And just a couple of weeks ago, my friend George Morgan, um, he, he, he died. And, um, but this particular last year when my friend Ty passed away, I went to his funeral and it was an open casket. And that was the first time I'd been to an open casket for a friend, um, that, you know, someone so young 
that 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 died. How old was he? Uh, 24, I think. It's 24. Wow. 24. And were you still using at that time? Um, yes. At at the time I went to his funeral, I was still using. Um, and that was right before I got clean because uh so that you was this, kind of this reckoning of an overdose experience that really shook you to your core followed by one of your best friends then dying from an overdose yeah yeah then what happens it it was a it was kind of a a, um it was an eye-opener you know and i had uh so i had went to treatment that summer and went to vinland um, and I went to treatment for meth because I, I had been staying at a, a friend's house using meth and, you know, was staying at a hotel and uh, a casino and just, uh, you know, and so I went. And then after that was when I went to the funeral, um, the end of the summer. And then um, I think the funeral is in like September, maybe. I think he died at the end of the summer. And um, it was November 24th when I went back to treatment at Vinland. Um and that was last year. And it was like, uh, just kind of a culmination of, of everything that's happened. And, and, um, it was like a moment where I, I knew that I was really close to having any more. I, I don't think I have any more chances. I'll just mm-hmm. put it that way. I don't think, you know, because of how deadly the fentanyl is right now and, and, and how reckless my addiction is and my habit is, I I'm lucky enough to be alive as it is, you know? And, and so I finally had to accept and believe that I'm here for a reason and that, um, you know, I need to figure out what that reason is. I'm still looking for it. You know, I, I have some direction of where I want to go in life, but um, it really came down to identifying some of the core reasons for the pride and the ego and the fear of rejection and the, all these like really core things that were so deep inside of me. Like you could never touch any of that on a surface level. But it sounds like this time, Nick, as you said at the top, that you truly surrendered and you decided that you were going to do something fundamentally different than you'd ever done before. And you were going to really surrender and then follow suggestions in order to get better, right? Yeah. So this is the fun part. So (laughs) I, I came out of inland and, um, they were like, well, we think you should go to uh, in out, intensive outpatient in a sober house. You know, intensive outpatients like two and a half hours a day. IOP, baby. I, IOP. Am a, I am a proud, proud yeah. graduate of IOP. New way? No, Hazel. No, oh, okay. Yeah. It, it, so I went to IOP and I was like, dude, that's the last thing I wanted to do after coming out of treatment. <laughs> you know, um, I had a construction job and I was ready to, to work, go back to work and get a, you know, rent a room or an apartment or a hotel. I didn't care. But I was like, well, at the beginning of all this, I said, I'm going to do what they tell me to do. And excuse me, <clears throat> I'm going to do all the things I don't want to do 
because that's all the things that I never did before. <laughs> and so um, I was in New Way and I, this, this TED talk came on and it was this guy, I don't, I don't remember his name, but he was talking about three things that, that like his three steps to success and recovery in business. And it was um, being authentic, doing uncomfortable work and surrendering the outcome. And then he expanded on those three things. And I just remember it kind of hit me. I was like, well, shit, I'm already doing most of that stuff anyway. You know, as far as like surrendering the outcome and, and um, doing uncomfortable work, it was like one of those like uh, uh, spiritual punches to the face. For real. Like, like, see, I've been telling you this all along, you idiot. Like, you got to do this stuff you don't want to do. That's right. The things that-, that we were averse to doing before. Yeah. Your TED talk was by Joe and Charlie tapes because they said the same thing. Okay, they said the same thing. They just said, don't worry about the process. Don't judge the process. Just do the work and judge the result. And that's exactly what it was. Surrendering the outcome. Don't worry about what's going to happen. Just do the work to the best of your given ability. Be authentic about it. And be willing to do whatever it takes, whatever it takes in order to get better. And when you do that, the outcome will blow your fucking mind. It will. It will. It continues to, you know, a year now, a year later, I'm I'm managing a men's sober house. I have a, a sales job with the biggest building supply company in America, um, ABC supply company. And, um, I love my job. I love my, my guys here at the house. And it's, yeah, it's, it's completely different now because um, I realize like there is no exception. Nobody's exempt from recovery and addiction. You know, if you have the, the brain chemistry, whatever it is genetically in your, in your DNA, in your brain, in your personality, whatever it is that makes you, uh, prone to addiction, you're not exempt from, from the way that life works. Life is not prejudice when it comes to coming down on people. You know, it, it, it's people that are prejudiced to other people. So addiction is going to attack you the same way it'll attack anyone else. It doesn't care who you are, what you believe in, what your skin color is. And so, um, you know, after, after coming out of, of uh, Vinland and coming here, I started uh, another thing that's really helped and, and kind of shifted things is uh, meditation mm. is like been kind of a, a cornerstone for me. Um, I started getting into kind of East, more Eastern philosophy stuff, you know, mindfulness. And um, I read a book called Becoming Supernatural by Dr. Joe Dispenza. And he is basically written this book that talks about all the different ways that our mind interacts with the physical world around us mm-hmm. at a molecular, at, a, at a atomic level. Um, and uh, so I, I like had this spiritual metaphysics journey of, you know, the, the nature of existence and reality and consciousness and, um, you know, spirituality. And it's just been a, you know, a really exciting experience for me because I've found that there is something much more vast and powerful than myself in the world and in the universe. And, and, um, you know, whatever that higher power is, 
Um, it's too big for me to ever even try to explain it or encompass it or fully understand it. But I do know that there is, there is a force of love in the world and there's a force of evil because I've seen both firsthand. It reminds me of one of my favorite sayings when it comes to spirituality. And that is the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Like it's okay to doubt and it's okay not to know. And when I had my extraordinarily profound spiritual experience, it was the result of, again, surrendering the outcome. I just started praying to a God that I had zero concept of. I had wiped the slate clean. Right. And all I was doing was asking for help in the morning and saying thank you at night. But I meant it with every fiber of my (laughs) being. I fucking meant it. Yeah. And And it 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 changed me. Like it changed me profoundly. Like figure that shit out. Figure out that I have no idea what I'm praying to. Yeah. No idea. And all I'm saying is help and thank you. Yeah. But I mean it with every fiber of my being and it's changing me in profound ways. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There is um, the power of prayer is beyond any logical explanation. Um, the way that prayer works is something that we have no clue um, with certainty, Indeed. but with faith, you know, the power of prayer, it, it allows us to connect with whatever part of existence is out there that, that gives us meaning that gives us belonging purpose connection uh, connection to whatever it is that's out there and and sometimes i refer to it as the universe yeah you know it depends on the mood like you know sometimes i'll say you know um well if god had this you know prepared for me or if the god whatever and sometimes i'll say well you know the universe just had this for me you know the universe just just put this here for me um and and it's kind of a spiritual term for me and, and a lot of people are confused when i say that but it's that's sometimes how i feel about my higher power is the universe it's like everything that is and everything that is is so far beyond anything we can understand because everything that we know every word that we know every concept we've ever been thought of every foul thing that's ever been said to someone every loving word that's ever been said to someone every bright idea every rainy day everything that we know can fit onto a pale blue dot and and carl sagan said it was pretty much i just paraphrase what carl sagan Mm -hmm. said but but basically everything that is is smaller than a pale blue dot which is earth Right. right. Compared to the grand scheme. Right. Of right. You know, right. It's yeah. just a pale blue dot in the sky of infinite pale blue dots. And so understanding like that, the scope of, of reality that I live in, it was just so far blew me away. And in, in concert with meditating, meditating for me is like a form of, of praying as well. So like my Absolutely. praying, you know, is also meditating. It's kind of conversing, you know, praying, Absolutely. they say, meditating, they say is listening and praying is talking sometimes. Without is, question. I think I, and so, um, but I started doing these meditations, um, guided meditations where I would, uh, there's a lot of really good ones on YouTube. 
um, self-hypnosis and guided um, meditation. And because um, I got into this uh, kind of uh, esoteric subject of like a new age um, mystery school kind of uh, tangent where I got into reading kind of um, uh, it's called a hermetic philosophy. And it's a, it's a type of philosophy that's really popular with like um, kind of secret societies and like just your, your uh, conspiracy theorist type people um, often say that these are the, the philosophies that people use to run the world. But really what it is, is it's just, it talks about like, you know, principles that govern the universe and govern like our existence and vibrations and thoughts. And, um, you know, and so when I started learning these things about physics, like, um, you know, there's a famous, it's called the dual, the double slit theory. And this is kind of in, in modern physics where they shoot particles through two different slits and they turn into waves and they try, they create a pattern when they go through these slits behind it, they hit the wall and they create this little pattern. And when they go to measure it, the mere act of watching it to measure it, the mere act of doing that changes it because the, the, the particles are aware that they're being observed. And so they change. And it's, uh, it's one of those crazy anomalies in physics that we can't explain. And, and this book by Joe Dispenza kind of digs deeper into that about how people are changing their, their biology um, their serotonin levels, right. um, all these different That's parts prof- of their profoundly interesting. It just illustrates there's so much more that we yeah, don't know than we exactly. do. Exactly, and for so yeah, sure. Thank you, because I would have went. You wouldn't have got me back if I would. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> of getting you back, we're gonna yeah, ask you some closing questions. Are yeah, you? Yeah, let's do that. What does your daily or regular recovery routine consist of? So I. Um, Monday through Friday, I work, uh, I, I get up and, um, I work, I go to, uh, it's like less than 10 minute drive, but I, um, I work during the day and then I come home and, um, it depends day to day. Like I, I spent a lot of time, um, journaling a lot of time. Um, so one thing I, I do is I like to produce music. I've always liked like poetry and stuff. And so when I got out of treatment last year, I kind of knew, like I told myself basically like, dude, you got to get a hobby. You know, you got to start, you got to start finding, you know, stuff to do because, you know, all the time you spent doing drugs. That's it. A lot of the practicality around recovery is filling the void of our time that used to be spent finding, preparing, managing and engaging. Right in our substance of choice, that time is now available and we have the opportunity to fill that time with positive things. Yeah. And so that's what I try to do. Um, I, uh, I've, I've, I've went to, I go to different meetings sometimes. Um, I, I can't lie though. Uh, lately I haven't been hitting up a lot of meetings. Um, it's, you know, there's no excuses, but, um, I do, you know, I still do hit up my meetings in, in, um, Meraki. We have Thursday, recovery meetings. And, and, um, so sometimes I still speak, I volunteer to speak at different places. Um, and, um, right now I just met, uh, there's a new treatment center in twin cities called, um, twin cities wellness center and recovery gym, the twin cities wellness center and recovery gym. Yep. Tremendous. And so, um, 
I had recently learned about this, uh, this gym, um, treatment center. And I was like, I, 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 she posted a picture and, um, it had like boxing bags and stuff. And I was just like, how cool is that? Like a treatment center that you can go punch stuff. And, and so uh, I reached out with her, I'm friends with her brother and stuff. So I reached out to her and, and told her about my background in, in coaching and stuff. So, um, starting next week, I'm going to, you know, start coaching their clients, just doing like a little class, you know, for kickboxing, um, volunteering, you know, just very because, cool. You know, that's the type of stuff that in it's, it doesn't matter what it is day to day. You just need to find something you, you enjoy. You know, fill your time with positive things for sure that that are connected to your gifts that you're starting to rediscover and aligning you with that purpose. That is absolutely tremendous. Nick, what book or piece of recovery literature had the biggest impact on your recovery? You may have already mentioned it already. And if Mm. that's the one you re-mentioned that, but uh, hit us with your best quit lit recommendation. Oh, man. Um. If I had to pick one that's influenced me this last year, it would have to be um, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Tremendous. Yeah. That's not been mentioned before on this here podcast. So that's really. Yeah. Yes. Good. Good. Because it's it's not really a recovery book. I mean, mean, it can be. It's got it. It's yeah. It's more of a self-help business type book, but it's it just fit with my place in life right now and the season, the time I read it. I, love I was it. just like, dude, this guy gets it. Like, yeah. you know, and there's I just, love it. yeah, amazing book. What is the best piece of advice you have received in recovery thus far? Um, I think, and it's advice that was given to me a long time ago, and it wasn't even about recovery, but it was a, a friend of mine named Jason. I'm still friends with today. He told me one time, Nick, always trust your gut. And that stuck with me from from that day on. And um, when I say trust your gut, there is a an innate instinct that I think every person has that is connected to some sense that we don't understand outside of our normal senses, I smell touch. There's a part of us that, that will, the spidey senses will kick off, you know, something's wrong. And, um, it's saved my life many times. And it's pushed me to be to where I am now. If you feel deep inside that, that what the right thing to do is no matter how hard it is, do it because that'll change your life. Those are the things that change you. Doing the hard rights over the easy wrongs. Mm. I absolutely love that. Yeah. Trust your gut. What is the greatest challenge you've had in recovery thus far? Um, myself. Getting outside of myself, really. Um, and I think that's that's been a common denominator all along is um, getting outside of myself and realizing that, that um, I'm not here on walking the planet because of my own, uh, for my own like happiness. Well, 
uh, let me change the wording there. I'm not here just for happenstance. This isn't a random occurrence. I don't believe that life and existence is random. You know, uh, we didn't, you know, regardless of how we got here, whether it's from the big bang or, or the voice of God, whatever it is. Um, the biggest challenge for me is getting outside of myself and, and realizing that I need to make sure that I'm doing my part. Mm. And when I say doing my part, um, I think that I have a responsibility to help others that, that struggle with some of the same things I did because it took people like me to help me get out of where I was at that time. It took somebody that had been in my position before and gotten out of it. Um, and, and when I say someone, I'm, I'm not speaking of any one specific person, just, you know, the amount of people that have helped me in my journey from treatment, from counselors to friends, to sponsors, to, you know, iron sharpens iron. That's, that's a good, you know, it's a phrase from the Bible and, and it's, you know, iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. If I'm not sharpening other people, then I'm not sharpening myself, you know, and, and, and that's the biggest thing that I need to remember because when I start getting into myself, like, you know, this music thing, it's really easy to, to go me, 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 me. Um, and I've actually deleted songs before and re-recorded just because I, I don't want it to be like me, 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 mm -hmm. you know, I, I want. And, and so in my music, I don't talk about how, how cool I am. You know, I talk about how much pain I've been through because that's the shit people want to hear. I talk about, you know, the struggles I've been through and, and I share the pain and the experiences and the loss because that's the real shit. That's the shit that people care about because that's the shit that they feel too. And when you can, when you can show someone that they're not alone emotionally, um, I think that's one of the greatest gifts you can give someone because there's a certain there's a certain depth of, of darkness you can get to when you feel alone that is, it is below anything else. When it once, you know, life can be really shitty, but then when it's, when you're alone, you know, at least when you're not alone, you're, you're shitty with other people. Right. But when you can reach out to someone, whether through a song, through a, a sentence, a phrase, a letter, whatever it is, when you can reach out and show someone that they're not alone emotionally, like where they hear what you said and it instantly resonates inside them. And they're like, wow, that's exactly how I feel. Um, that is, is what I think my purpose is, is to, is to reach out in, in whatever way I can to show people that, you know, we're all here together type thing. When we can get out of ourselves yeah. and act in love, yeah. kindness, and service to our brothers and sisters in and out of recovery. I truly believe that is why we are here. Totally. Yeah. That is the whole thing. Yeah. Life's a party, you know, find your gifts, embrace those gifts and then use those gifts in a purposeful way to bring love, kindness, yeah. and service to our brothers and sisters in and out of recovery. And that's the whole game. 
Yeah, it is. It opens up a whole new um, area of love that you never knew before because you know, it's easy to love yourself. Well, theoretically, like it's easy to to be focused on yourself, self-centered, but when you start opening yourself up and when you can learn to actually like, like observe somebody else's happiness and success and, and be genuinely happy for them, you know, which is the opposite of envy, you know, um, when you can actually get aside from that, that humanistic, envy and jealousy and be like, man, I'm, I'm happy for that dude. That motherfucker came through hell to get to where he is today. You know? And when you genuinely feel that for other people, it's like, wow, like I'm happy, but it's not my happiness. I'm happy because you're happy. Yeah. You know, that is just a fucking awesome place to be in because like it, you know, and it's yeah. Without question, without question, Nick, what's the greatest success you've had in recovery thus far? Um, I would say uh, repairing, uh, starting to repair the relationship with my daughter. Mm. Um, you know, uh, I should mention, you know, one uh, aside from my friend passing away and aside from having a really tragic overdose experience, um, this last time getting clean, it was my daughter's, uh, my daughter cut, cut me off. I broke the last promise she was going to take. She had had enough. She was sick of my shit. So she was like, I'm, I'm done. She, she didn't want nothing to do with me. And um, that is, that was the nail in the coffin of, mm. of who I used to be, you know? And um, so being able to spend weekends with her when she's not too busy being a little human with her friends, yeah. um, you know, when she's not too busy on TikTok, um, we, we've gotten a lot different relationship now, you know, that's a lot closer than where we used to be. Um, I'm able to be a lot more open with her because you know, I had to finally stop and realize she's not a little kid anymore. She's almost, you know, she's a teenager. And so um, once I started treating her like that, things changed, you know, and once I started being, it wasn't that I relapsed. I don't think so much as the fact that I lied about it, mm-hmm. that hurt her so much, but um, being able to have her in my life again, has, you know, revived my, my whole meaning. For what me. a gift. Yeah. What a gift. Completely. The next one's a doozy. And then we end with a fun one. All right. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? Um, the things I put my daughter through, you know, she she witnessed some things that no no little girl ever should have to, you know, um, from their from their parent and someone they should that they that they should be able to trust to to care for them and not put them in harm's way. And so um, it's still hard to forgive myself for some of the things I've done as a father, for sure. That is the real life stuff that we have the opportunity to continue to make those living amends for and continue to show up the way we know we can in recovery and in sobriety, right? Totally, totally. Here's the fun one. Oh, boy. Music guy, right? So, okay. all right. All right. so, what song symbolizes recovery to you, Nick? Oh man, yeah. Um, there's a song that's on Spotify called "When I Fell Down." 
when I fell down and who does this song? Nikki Logos. N-I-C-K-Y L-O-G-O-S. And that's the first song that I ever produced by myself and released by myself. And it's on Spotify and in other places, but um, that is a song about my recovery. It symbolizes everything I went through. And I wrote that song while I was in Vinland last year and I released it, I think uh, this summer. That's tremendous. That will be added to our Spotify playlist. Awesome. On the way out podcast. So if you are listening right now, check the show notes. We will have When I Fell Down by Nikki Logos. Yes. A.K.A. Nick Warnke. Yep. We will have a link to Heroin Survivor. We will have a link to Survivor Sessions, the podcast. Awesome. We will have Nick's recovery advice. We will have his Quitlet recommendation. All of that will be in the show notes. In addition, we'll also throw a link in there for the highly sensitive person. It's a great website that I'll put on there by the doctor and researcher that pioneered this work, Dr. Elaine Aaron. There's a handy little quiz on there too. So that's pretty cool. So all of that amazingness will be in the show notes. So if you're listening right now, check that out. Nick, thank you so much, brother. Yeah, man. Thank you. It's been a blessing, man. It's been an absolute tremendous experience. And I can't thank you enough for taking time to share your recovery journey with us and all of the experience, strength, and hope that went along with it. It was amazing. Amen, man. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you. Have, have a good one. And everybody that's listening, man, just keep shining. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast Land. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.